Episode 6 of Adventures in VHS, the movie podcast dedicated to the lost format of VHS. My name is Noel Meller and this is the show where I take a look at one of the tapes that once adorned the shelves of my local rental store back in the 1980s. The podcast is, of course, a way for me to get all misty-eyed about the films I grew up with or remember fondly because of their gruesomely beautiful sleeve and poster art, but there is a wider purpose. This is because Adventures in VHS is also a book that I'm currently writing, which is a personal journey through 50 of the films that could be found in Video World, my own local independent outlet that was uh, curated by the only moral guardian I needed, a bloke called John who owned the store and had the power to say, I don't think your mum would like you to rent that, but very rarely did. If this is the first time you've listened to the show, it basically consists of me talking about the history of one particular film before taking a closer look at its respective UK VHS release. Uh, So that involves taking a look at the wonderful cover, checking out the trailers, and then offering up a review of the movie itself. Then, in the last section of the show, there's an exclusive interview where I'm joined by someone who can offer up their own unique insight into the home video era and what it means to them. This started on the first episode of Adventures in VHS where I looked at 1987's Creepazoids and talked to its director David Dakota about how VHS, in his words, invented his career. I've since spoken to Lloyd Kaufman about the class of Newcomb High and how Troma embraced the home video revolution while the bigger studios were trying to kill it off. And I've also had the pleasure of talking to Josh Johnson, who's the director of Rewind This, uh, which is an upcoming documentary that looks at how home video changed the movie industry and had such an impact on uh, society as it went along too. In this episode, and I'm very excited about this, I'm going to be taking a look at one movie that I feel had one of the most memorable covers of the late 1980s, 1987's Kindred. Uh, And then I'll have an exclusive interview with the man who created that particular sleeve and poster, Mr. Graham Humphreys. 
Now, of course, Kindred is just one of Graham's pieces, so he'll also be talking about some of the incredible work he's done over the years uh, for films like A Nightmare on Elm Street 1-5, to uh, he did Basket Case, and, of course, the legendary artwork that he did for the Evil Dead films. So I'm hugely excited that uh, Graham's been able to do an interview uh, with me because, you know, the artwork is just such a huge part of the book, and it's a huge part of this podcast, and so I am suitably thrilled and I'm sure you can probably tell Uh, but at this point it's time for me to say once again you need to sit back adjust your tracking and join me for a trip back to 1987 where we can immerse ourselves in the slimy tentacled world of kindred burn the journals the Anthony journals burn them a series of unspeakable disasters all linked to a mysterious experiment. Did she have any other children? She mentioned someone named Anthony. Dangerously close to home. It wasn't a rabid dog. It's absolutely amazing. Just amazing. It's a him. It's a him. It was born in the house. A creation that destroys in order to evolve. It's part of your heart, part of your mind, part of your soul. He's part of your imagination, you understand? Academy Award winners Rod Steiger and Kim Hunter star in The Kindred, exclusively from Vestron Video. That's your brother, do you understand that? It was a mistake. So, 1987's Kindred, then, uh, is written and directed by Stephen Carpenter and Jeffrey Obro, uh, a duo that had a handful of other writer-director credits and producer credits uh, over the years, nothing too noteworthy. Uh, The first feature on their CV is the 1982 film Pranks, uh, which is also known as The Dawn That Dripped Blood. Uh, and from its trailer, it looks like your fairly typical early 80s, low-budget slasher type of stuff. Uh, that film was reissued on DVD in 2001, when it was added to the Vipco Screen Time collection, alongside a bunch of other sort of genre classics like Toolbox Murders and City of the Living Dead, that type of thing. Uh, so, Carpenter and Obro, uh, they worked together again two years after The Dawn That Drip Blood, or Pranks, uh, on a movie called The Power. And this is a supernatural chiller uh, that actually looks pretty interesting. Unfortunately, it seems as though after it was released uh, on Vestro, Vestron Video back in 1984, it pretty much disappeared off the face of the earth. So, I've not been able to find it anywhere. Uh, even though I, I, by the looks of it, I'd definitely give it a watch. If I could uh, get a hold of a copy of the VH, uh, VHS of it, I would definitely give it a watch. Kindred, on the other hand, was the last movie that they directed together before uh, the team went their separate ways thereafter. Uh, Obro's most recent work is a sci-fi horror movie that was made for TV and has also since been released on DVD, which is called They Are Among Us. Uh, it features a, a couple of familiar faces like Corbin Burnson and Bruce Boxleitner, uh, but if the reviews I've read are anything to go by, it didn't exactly set the world alight when it was released. 
in fact, probably one of the most interesting facts that you'll find about that particular film is that it features Domenica Cameron Scorsese, who is, of course, the, the daughter of Marty and also had a brief appearance in his 1991 remake of, of Cape Fear. Carpenter, the other director, on the other hand, uh, may be a little bit more well-known to some people. He's probably best known nowadays as the writer and creator of Grimm. Uh, which is the NBC fantasy TV show that's that's now into its second season. He has, however, also had writing credits in the last few years that include Martin Lawrence's Blue Streak, uh, and in 2001 he also directed Wes Bentley and Casey, Casey Affleck in the DTV horror Soul Survivors. So I think it's fair to say that Carpenter's kind of come out the 1980s doing a little bit better than maybe Obro has. Back in the mid-80s, though, uh, when the pair were still together and working in a studio system that was churning out genre movies at a terrifying rate uh, just due to the sheer hunger for, for it on, home, on the home video market, uh, the result was 1987's Kindred. Uh, now, that's known in some markets as The Kindred, and in Germany, under the rather innocuous title of Antony, uh, but in the UK, it's simply Kindred. No, the just Kindred. Um, and, you know, that's what I'm going with because that's what it says on the VHS slave and that's what it says on the poster. So it's Kindred, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the movie opened in New York in January of 1987 um, before showing that summer at the Paris Festival of Fantastic Films. However, it was also passed by the BBFC for a UK VHS release in February of that year uh, with a runtime of 88 minutes and 44 seconds with no cuts and an 18 rating. Uh, on its release, it had a fairly healthy life on home video and it appears to have made quite an impact with those who, rem who remember renting it back in those days. So you could say it's kind of enjoyed what could be described as, as a cult, say, cult status of sorts uh, in the years that followed. However, despite that, the film's never made an appearance on DVD or Blu-ray in the UK or US. Uh, in fact, it's never really been made available on any other format uh, anywhere, really. It was reclassified with a 15 rating, again, without cuts, in 1991 for Sky TV. So, uh, so they obviously uh, showed it at some point. Um, and then it was put out as a region-free DVD in Australia alone in 2006. Uh, however, that particular DVD release was very limited and is now out of print. Um, and apparently it was also transferred from a VHS version uh, of the film. So, yeah, so sadly that means that to this day the film is pretty much unavailable, um, certainly in terms of, um, you know... Uh, of, of, of being readily available uh, Amazon does have some copies of the Australian DVD uh, listed as available um, as well as the VHS version which you can still pick up if you can find someone who's got a copy that they want to give up uh, don't bother emailing me I'm keeping mine um, and so yeah unless some kind soul puts it up on YouTube or Netflix or Love Film stumble upon it it seems like for most people probably illegal channels will will be the uh, the only way they can get get hold of it which is sad really because it seems like there is a lot of affection for the film um just you know have a quick search around and you'll find a bunch of forum posts all over the internet uh of people sort of crying out for a reissue 
my association with Kindred up until this point has been fairly limited. Um, it's one of the films on the Adventures in VHS list, uh, which, like Ghoulies, um, has artwork that is, is something that has, has stayed with me. But I've never actually got around to watching it and I never actually got around to renting it back in the day. Uh, unlike Ghoulies, though, that had nothing to do with a fear of what lay beyond the VHS sleeve. In the case of Kindred, I just, some for some reason, never got around to renting it. It seems quite strange because it is such an iconic sleeve and it does stick out like a sore thumb. And it has, you know, some cracking... Um, some cracking taglines which I'll get into in a moment so it does seem a little strange that I never rented it um, but yeah, apparently I never did uh, so with that in mind, it is a film that I had been very keen to catch up with uh, so when I saw a, a copy of it available on the pre-cert video forum, I was very quick to scoop it up I think it probably cost me about 4 or 5 quid delivered, so it's quite the bargain in my eyes um, but that really comes down to the fact that it is a post-cert release um, and for those who don't know that basically means it came out after the Video Recordings Act of 1984 um, that makes it much less collectible to, to VHS collectors um, than you know than perhaps one of the films that came out before uh, the Video Recordings Act of 1984 um, basically just to explain further, a pre-cert tape is, is one that came out before 1984 that wouldn't have automatically carried a BBFC uh, rating um, and in fact for that reason may have even uh, have been one of the films that was destroyed by Scotland Yard's bumbling obscene publications at squad back in the day um, so yeah it's not, it's not a hugely collectible tape but it's a rare movie so um, if you find a VHS I'd say buy it um, but then I would uh, yeah so anyway the artwork is a hand painted piece by the one and only Graham Humphreys who most people will know as the man responsible for the iconic semi neon uh, Evil Dead 1 and 2 posters um, as well as uh, things like Basket Case he's done all the Nightmare on Elm Street well a bunch of the Nightmare on Elm Street films and many many more things over the years including the artwork that you see adorning the Empire Cinema each year at Fright Fest. So it is easy to see how this particular sleeve and poster uh, became so memorable uh, for those of us who grew up frequenting uh, video rental stores in the late 1980s. In terms of how the artwork was made, I'll be asking its creator, Graham Humphreys, for a little bit more uh, on that later on. Uh, but I just wanted to refer to uh, an interview that he did for Film on Paper in 2011 uh, where he was asked about uh, how the, the artwork for Kindred came about and he said, this was through a design company and they'd been instructed to use me because of the work I'd done on Evil Dead. They gave me the layout and the design and just told me to illustrate it. I remember at the time I'd showed it to somebody as part of my portfolio and they'd said, well, it's interesting, but there are lots of screaming faces with dribbly bits. So it was kind of dismissed by that particular person. I would not be so quick to dismiss it. I love it. Uh, so let's take a look at the actual cover, shall we? Um, first thing to point out is this uh, particular tape is on the Entertainment in Video label. Um, most people will know entertainment in video nowadays under its different title of entertainment film distributors uh, huge 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 company 
um, which started out in the VHS era, um, you know, distributing tapes from 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 way back and and you know before the uh, the video recordings out to 1984 as well. Um, Entertainment in video is an interesting label because it's the one that I feel that I've kind of attached myself to. Um, when you start collecting videotapes, you kind of I don't know how it happens, but some people just find an affinity with with one particular label. Now, if you're a pre-cert collector and you you know you collect sort of um, pre-cert tapes, that might be that might be something like Vipco. It might be something like uh, Astra or Intervision or one of these many other labels that are, that are sort of hugely collectible. But to be honest with you, I do collect pre-cert tapes, but I collect post-cert tapes as well, and and really. It's the later stuff that I'm more interested in because I'm not interested in collecting them for for monetary reasons or anything like that. I, I collect these tapes because they're a part of my childhood and that you know and and for that reason I've kind of I started to sort of elevate towards entertainment in video because it had so many of the films, the iconic sort of films that uh, that I remember from back then. Um, Medusa is another label that I'm uh, very attracted to and and have quite a few of. Uh, but if you were to look at my video shelf as it is now, you will you will find an awful lot more entertainment in video than anything else. Um, yeah, it's it's weird. You just sort of you elevate towards one particular label apparently, and yeah, for me it seems to be entertainment in video. Um, so yeah, entertainment in video started out in the uh, in the early 80s putting out an, an awful lot of stuff uh, stuck around after the video recordings act um, after so many other distributors went bump because of the ridiculous fees and everything that was going on there um, entertainment and video stuck around they went on and distributed all sorts of things uh, including stuff like the Lord of the Rings trilogy so you know they're one of the major players in Hollywood nowadays so it's great that that kind of came out of uh, of home of, of the home video boom um so yeah i'm holding in my hand this copy of uh, kindred from uh, 1987 on entertainment in video um the first thing apart from the uh the insanely beautiful cover is the um the double the use of a double tagline so um we've got two taglines on the front uh the top one has to be the best one though uh check this out for a, for a tagline john's got a half brother Half brother, half something else. Cracking. Um, that tells you all you need to know. Um, and if you sort of you look down from there, you've got this gorgeous, as I say, hand painted by Graham Humphreys uh, cover, which is basically a big blue green sort of monster head with bright red eyes uh, beaming out at you, and uh, just a a. a a complex web of tentacles behind it that are sort of obviously coming from it, um, and then right front and center between the two uh, the two piercing red eyes is this sort of uh, typically sort of monstrous mouth, uh, monstrous and slightly vaginal perhaps mouth, uh, which is uh, teeming with sort of razor razor sharp teeth, and, and obviously they are dripping with goo and uh, saliva as it sort of uh, as it sort of um, approaches you, it's a beautiful, beautiful cover. I can't, I really can't say say enough about it. Um, beautiful greens and blues, and lots of lovely white highlights, uh, n- not just on the teeth and the saliva, but right across the skin. Really, really gives it that sort of um, that sort of wet, 
glistening sort of uh, look, which is incredible. Um, and there's just a lovely bit of red light that's just uh, just surrounding the back uh, the back end of the head, which is lovely. Um, and then you come down, and there's a gorgeous uh, red font, which just says Kindred. And below that, we've got the second tagline, which is, Some things are best left unborn. I mean, some things are best left unborn is a strong tagline. I will give you that. But John's got a half-brother, half-brother, half-something else. I, I, that's stronger. I don't know if that second second one was needed. I think what's probably happened here is they've realised that they've got two strong taglines and they've just thought, fuck it, we'll stick them both on, which is understandable, I suppose. Um, yeah, so underneath that, we've got the um, the usual credits and the 18 certificate, uh, which is great. It's an 18. We like that. Uh, and then on the side, just a smaller representation of the, uh, the poster, uh, with no taglines or text, and then below that, Kindred, um, and obviously at the top, the Entertainment in Video logo. Turning it around to the back, we've got four images. We have a uh, the image of um, Rod Steiger. Uh, he is play, he plays a scientist in this movie, and we've got a fairly typical scene here of him in a laboratory surrounded by test tubes and um, bottles of various coloured liquids. Um, to the left of that, we have uh, an image of the monster, which kind of vaguely looks like the monster that we've got on the front. Although I think probably um, we'll—I'll ask him about this. But um, yeah, Graham Humphreys obviously had some artistic license to to develop the face of the monster a little bit as as he saw fit. Um, then there's a picture of a woman uh, panicking, and uh, there is another picture which is someone turning into a fish is probably the best description of that um it's the face of a person who appears to have developed gills and is all glistening and and horrible and uh, and greasy so um yeah some interesting visuals there to uh, to get us to get us slightly moist uh, I'll read you the blurb. On her deathbed, a genetic scientist tells her son John of an experiment that should never have taken place, and of a brother he's never met. Determined to end such experiments and find his brother, John enlists the help of the sinister Dr. Lloyd, Rod Steiger, unaware of Lloyd's own gruesome experiments on kidnapped victims. The mystery of John's brother and the terrible result of the experiments prove to be one and the same. Anthony a bigger and more dangerous genetic freak than anyone dared predict. Uh, running time listed here is 89 minutes, and then uh, the usual legal gubbins at the bottom and the 18 certificate. Just opening it up, I can tell you that this is a film that arrived in an entertainment and video embossed box, which delights me incredibly. Um, this time it's a white entertainment and video embossed box. Older entertainment and video stuff tends to come in blue boxes generally, um, so I have a, a nice healthy collection of blue box entertainment and video stuff alongside the later uh, entertainment and video uh, stuff which comes in white boxes and, and black boxes and stuff. So um, yeah, so that's Kindred uh, in terms of its history and the actual VHS copy. Um, after this break, I will pop the tape into the recorder and uh, we'll take a little look at the trailers.
Okay, so here we go. Uh, I'm in slightly different situation for recording this because I'm up at my mum's, but luckily she's got an old VHS player. So I think everything's going to work, and if this damn thing chews up this tape, I'm going to freak the fuck out. But um, yeah, so let's get cracking and pop Kindred on, and we'll take a look at the trailers. So we start with the Entertainment in Video logo, which is obviously a little bit different in the late 80s than it was in the uh, early 80s. Entertainment in Video coming soon. Uh, this looks like House. Okay. This must be the sequel to House, I'm guessing. Yes, it is. Um, I actually watched all of the house movies very recently. Um, there is a possibility that I'll be talking about them further on on one of the uh, future episodes of the podcast, but um, this is the uh, trailer for House 2, which, um, out of the three movies, I'm not too sure. It's, it's a bit of a... It's a bit of an oddity house too, because the first the first movie was um, was comical, but it was a horror movie. Uh, the second film, or House to the Second Story, as it's known, is kind of like a a Joe Dante esque adventure family adventure movie uh, that all takes place in this house. Um, it's an odd little film. Um, I I guess I enjoyed it. I think it's fair to say I enjoyed it. I enjoyed all the house movies, but. Um, it's very different to the the other two films in the trilogy, if you like. I know there is a House Four, and uh, but you know, I'm just looking at those three films because those are the ones that were in the 80s. What is this? Oh fucking hell! Right, okay. Has this come up before? I feel like this might have come up before on the podcast, but this is um, an animated movie from the uh, from the the mid to late 1980s called The Big Bang. Um, it's an adult animated film, basically, and it's got horrific animation. Um, there's a couple of interesting voice cast people in there. I think one of them is probably about to come up now. But yeah, I recognise... I recognise one of the voices in there as being one of the Simpsons uh, guys. I'm not sure which one. Um, but yeah, I remember this film being out at the time, and I remember seeing the trailer for it, and I remember seeing the uh, the, the the tape in the in the store, and I remember sort of thinking, "Wow, a, a dirty cartoon! What a crazy idea!" Um, but looking back on it now, it's dated horribly. It's just re- the 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 animation is terrible. Um, yeah, it seems to be related to a war of the sexes. Um, it's a world where men and women fight each other. It's a world with robot women that fire missiles out of their breasts. It's basically penis-shaped missiles, breast-shaped missiles, and uh, naked women who kill men with vaginal discharge I'd be curious to watch it actually I'd be curious to watch it if one comes up I'd definitely consider picking one up but you know I can't stress just how bad the uh, the animation is I don't know who it was who made it it doesn't look like it's any of the uh, 
the more known animation studios by looks it's not a back sheet by any stretch um yeah Wow, that woman's got a lot of tits. Coming. Coming. See what they did there? Ha 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 ha. The Big Bang. Okay. Interesting. Uh, something tells me this isn't going to be as straightforward as you say it is, sir. Uh, Oh, don't no. Right, the this guy has turned up to a block of flats, and it looks like this block of flats is um, run by some nasty gangs. And that's Tony Todd. I know what this is. This is Enemy Territory. Uh, this is definitely a movie that I want to check out. It's an early Tony Todd film. Um, in fact, I heard Tony Todd joke about it in a recent interview with uh, Outside the Cinema. Uh, because uh, I think Bill had sort of said, you know, most people know you as Candyman, and he was like, no, most people know me for my movie Enemy Territory, meaning that nobody has actually seen Enemy Territory. But I will see it. I'm going to seek it out. It looks interesting. It's basically a little bit like, uh, I don't know, you could say it's got shades of the raid about it, or, or you know, it's it's about a block of flats where, which is run by a criminal gang, and one guy kind of wanders into there and it looks like he gets locked in and he can't escape. And the only way out is down, as the guy says, but the only way out is also with Ray Parker Jr. and Jean-Michael Vincent. Now, if anybody's going to get you out of a block of flats that's run by a criminal gang, it's probably going to be Ray Parker Jr. and Jean-Michael Vincent. Jean-Michael Vincent looks like a sort of... Uh, Vietnam vet in this film. He's in a uh, he's in a wheelchair and he's in fatigue, so that usually signifies that. Speaking of Vietnam, what's this? Okay. Oh, badass. It's a trap. Oh, this is the bad guy from um, the Karate Kid. I can't remember his name. This is a badass kind of Rambo ripoff by the looks of things. However, it looks like it's about a man who can't let Vietnam go. And he's back in the real world now. And there are Asian people who are... Ah, the Vietnamese Mafia. Okay, so it's, it's an 80s movie about a Vietnamese Mafia and a Rambo-style character who's going to take them all down. Uh, there's loads of fucking explosions. The main guy in it is a badass, and as I say, he's the bad guy from the first Karate Kid movie, whose name escapes me. Um, his chief is the chief from Beverly Hills Cop. Though I don't know why he'd have a chief. He doesn't look like a peaceful man. Steal justice. Okay. Martin Cove, that's his name. That looks top. I'm into that. Okay, we see some wind chimes. This is all very soft focus. Ah, uh, this may have come up before as well. 
possibly. This is a trailer for um, a movie called The Good Wife. It's all very soft focus. It doesn't feature any clips from the movie. It basically shows close-ups of a woman's shoulder and neck and pearls and bra and there's lots of satin in the background. It's all very pale white. It looks a little bit like the music video uh, that was created by Ricky Gervais's character in The Office uh, for uh, If You Don't Know Me By Now. It's very soft focus. It kind of feels like a trailer for a book in a weird way. Um, Rachel Ward. The Good Wife. It's going to be like a soft core sort of Sky Movies late night porno, isn't it, really? Let's face it. Hey, Ghoulies! Fabulous. So I had my reservations about Ghoulies. Uh, anybody who listened to the last show will have heard me talk about it. I had my reserva reservations about it, but I have seen the trailer for Ghoulies 2 before, which is playing out right now. And it seems like an awful lot more fun. This feel, Ghoulies 2 feels more like the, the movie that I thought Ghoulies would be, which is basically sort of like a Gremlins ripoff. Little Ghoulies running around, getting up to mischief, driving bumper cars, popping up out of the toilet, biting people's colons out, that type of thing. Um, so for that reason, although I was a little bit put off by Ghoulies, uh, having placed such uh, expectation on it, I think I definitely would watch Ghoulies too, because as I say, looks more fun. They kill people. Yeah. Close, Carnival Hard, before they kill again. Thousand dollars. So any man who brings me one alive. So yeah, the effects on the Ghoulies are slightly better. Um. I can't remember when Ghoulies 2 was made, but I think there was a, I think it was a couple of years after Ghoulies. Um, so the effects are slightly better. It looks like they threw a bit more money at it, uh, because obviously the first movie was quite a success. And as I say, this film actually features uh, somebody having their ass bitten out, uh, which is what I wanted. Um, and that's the Entertainment In Video logo once more, which means we're on to the main feature. So after this break, I will uh, get into my review of 1987's Kindred. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Oh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. 
So opening with the horrific car crash that manages to put her into a coma, 1987's Kindred starts uh, by focusing at least on the mysterious scientific research which is being conducted in the shadows by one Dr. Amanda Hollins, uh, who is played by Kim Hunter, who of course uh, many people will know as Zera from Planet Beneath and Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Um, so uh, that's the initial focus of the uh, the story. This uh, strange scientific research that's being conducted by her and her even shadier geneticist partner, Dr. Philip Lloyd, who's played here by Oscar-winning actor Rod Steiger. Uh, however, all of this really only truly emerges once she's uh, she's come out of her coma uh, and she starts to spill the beans about the work she's been doing to her son. John, uh, played by David Allen Brooks. Now, John has apparently followed in her geneticist footsteps, uh, albeit in, in what appears to be a more medically focused role. Um, and Amanda gets busy telling her son that there is evidence uh, of this work that has laid dormant at her house while she's been in the coma, um, touched with a newfound desire to set things straight, apparently. Um, and so she tells him that he must head up to the, this remote house and destroy all the journals and things that relate to this particular project which she at this point seems to suggest um, may be known as Anthony. Um, Dr Lloyd on the other hand gets wind of his old partner's awakening and knows that these Anthony journals are exactly what he needs to continue to do his own work uh, which seems to revolve mainly around genetically modifying human beings and then feeding them with other human beings that have threatened to kind of expose his shady scientific dealings. Uh, But when Dr. Lloyd approaches Dr. Hollins in her sickbed, uh, she wants nothing to do with him. So he helps her out by being so mean to her that she actually dies from his meanness. Let me tell you something, Amanda. I think you had better tell me about Anthony. Before I go, I'm going to put a stop to you, Philip. I should have done it years ago. Where are you going to go, Amanda? Are you going to go to your... Uh, <laughs> you're going to go to your dust awards, are you? Are you? No, 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 no. <laughs> Why don't you tell me? No, you tell me. You tell me where your notebooks are. Tell me where the records of the experiments are. Tell me what you did. Tell me how you did it. I want to finish your experiments. <laughs> my power to finish you. I'm afraid, my darling, you don't have much power left. Meanwhile, John has been busy, and as he's not one to let grief over his recently deceased mother get in the way, uh, he sets about putting together a Scooby gang of geneticist buddies. So this team of geneticist super friends is uh, made up of two guys and three girls, uh, and one of those girls is uh, John's girlfriend, Sharon, who's played by uh, Talia Balsam, who some people will know from Mad Men, and other people may know as George Clooney's first and only wife. So what's this team up to well also because john has absolutely no respect for the last dying wishes of his mother um he actually reveals that he's got no intention of destroying these journals in fact he's much more interested in finding out what his mother was up to and getting to the bottom of of who or what this anthony project uh, really is at this point i'm going to give something away 
Antony is John's half brother, only he's half brother, half something else. You see. Um, so in order to find out a little bit more, John and his gang will need all the help they can get, which is possibly why he decides that he also needs to invite Melissa, uh, who's played by Amanda Pays, who he met at his mother's funeral, uh, along to the uh, to the house. Now Melissa has an interesting line of work. She's a geneticist. Um, or at least a researcher who claims to be an expert on, on what his mother was doing and might be his best shot at getting to the truth. So uh, we are knee-deep in geneticists by this point. You're her son. My condolences. Thank you. I'm Melissa Lethridge. I tried to get in touch with your mother. That's when I found out she was in hospital. Did you know her? No, not personally, but she was my inspiration all through my years at Oxford then at the Cavendish lab, and I was hoping at last I'd get the chance to meet and thank her. She'd sent me a letter full of praise and encouragement. It has to be said, maybe it's the fuzzy sort of low resolution of VHS, um, or, or maybe just the, the fact that it, this is coming from the 80s and, and obviously the very prim English accent. But there is a a very vague whiff of the Kelly LeBrock about Amanda Pays, um, who plays Melissa, um, so it's kind of um, no surprise then that I'd be sort of automatically attracted to her. A huge thing for Kelly LeBrock in the 1980s. It's probably also no surprise that John's missus, Sharon, uh, gets a little bit territorial once everybody's unpacked their geneticist equipment and settled into the gene- geneticist house. Sharon, what's the matter? Everything. I came up here to organize your mother's work and have a nice time doing it. It was just going to be you and me and our friends. And then you invite her and some sea monster tags heart. What's really bothering you is Melissa's here, right? I, I see how you are with Melissa. I see how you two work together. And you're also attracted to her. From there on in, strange things start to happen around the house. And certain members of the group are attacked uh, while they're both on and off the premises. Uh, Melissa reveals a quite literally colder and fishier side to her personality uh, which involves a relationship of sorts with the evil Dr. Lloyd Uh, and Dr. Lloyd himself eventually comes sniffing sniffing around the house um, and and as the truth behind um, what he and John's mother were up to uh, emerges everything sort of builds towards a more explosive uh, and extremely gooey climax uh, that isn't really a happy ending uh, for, for either him or Melissa or Anthony. So that's the story of Kindred in a nutshell. Um, what I'm going to do uh, for a nice change is I'm going to take you through the good and the bad of the uh, the movie. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about the things that I liked. I'll talk a little bit about the things that I think didn't work. And then I'll just kind of sum up with a quick sort of uh, review of, of, the, of Kindred overall. In terms of the good, I have to say the performances are fine uh, for this type of thing. However, there is one performance that stands out, rightly or wrongly, uh, above all the others. Um, if there is an MVP for Kindred, it has to be Rod Steiger as Dr. Lloyd. Um, at one point, he is referred to um, by Sharon as looking like a well poisoner. And that is absolutely 
the most accurate description of, of any film character as you are ever likely to come across. Rod Steiger really does look like a well poisoner in this movie. Um, his head is also almost f- completely spherical. It may be the most spherical head in movie history. Just have a look at Rod Steiger's head in his later life. He had an, an insanely spherical head. Um, also, he's wearing an awful toupee uh, throughout. And um, as far in his as far as his acting is concerned, he piles on the ham like a drunk subway employee. Bring me Anthony, and you bring me him alive. I, I don't know where it is. I'll just... It's not a hit. It's a him. It's a him. It was born in the house. It was spawned in Amanda's house. I don't want John to think his brother is dangerous. I'll make a deal with you. You do this for me, and I'll make you a stronger medication. Fair? The thing is, it's an extra level of weight to the film, and it is an, an incredibly enjoyable watch seeing him uh, seeing him chew the scenery in this way. Uh, you can almost imagine the directors, Stephen Carpenter and, and Jeffrey Obro, asking him to dial it down a bit and him bellowing at them about how many fucking Academy Awards that he's got and, and calling them petulant little shits or something like that. So this is a, a, an Oscar-winning actor late in his career who just brings a presence to the screen that everybody else can be fucking damned. He's going to chew that scenery and, and he doesn't care about anyone else. Um, so that's highly enjoyable. Another big positive is the score. Um Back in the 1980s, David Newman um, is a name that cropped up in quite a lot of genre films. So um, his name was on things like Critters. Um, he even had a, a credit for um, Tim Burton's original Frank and Weenie short. Um, and he was also incredibly pro- prolific later on uh, in the 80s and 90s. It seems like he worked on almost every comedy movie that was made in the 90s, if you take a look at his CV. And, and in this film, he does a lovely big 1980s score um, that feels a little bit like a sort of opulent television series from back in the day, but it really works in giving the whole thing an extra bit of weight every now and again. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the score is introduced um, very early on in the earliest scene with, um, with the car crash, and, and from there on in, you do feel like you're in sort of like, um, you know, quite opulent 80s TV territory, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it works in this particular instance. The other big thing about Kindred, really, that's that's a big positive, and it would have to be in a film of this sort, is the, uh, the special effects. The special effects are excellent. Um, the actual Anthony creature that we see at the end was, uh, was designed by Michael McCracken Jr., uh, who has a bunch of credits to his name, including Deep Blue Sea, Terminator 3, and Inception. Um, so he's someone who is still working in Hollywood. He seems to have have a lot of TV, like like a lot of people do, uh, on his uh, his CV as well. So it, it's great that you know this was an early part of his career, and he's gone on to uh, to other I don't want to say better things, but you know he's gone on to to have a career, which is great, especially in the prosthetics field, which is uh, obviously not as uh, not as um, flourishing as it was and also Matthew Mungle who did the uh, makeup effects has uh, been equally prolific uh, he has a lot of the same credits as 
as Michael McCracken Jr. So they've obvious they're obviously still working together. But he also has credits on things like X Men Three um, and Dumb and Dumber, strangely. So um, so yeah, the effects are uh, absolutely they hold up for a film of this kind anyway. And the creature design is is very enjoyable. Um, particularly one of the kill scenes that I'll uh, that I'll mention shortly as well. The bad points of uh, of Kindred they mainly all come down to plot really um unfortunately some things just don't fully make sense uh things are often a little bit unclear or they don't really go anywhere as an example you never really get an idea of what dr lloyd's end game is or what it is that he plans to 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 do with anthony once he has him I mean, it's kind of hinted at early on that he has ideas about making improvements to the the human race but it's never really followed up as to what it is that he's trying to achieve is he trying to achieve it for himself or is he just trying to achieve it for mankind or is he just a lunatic i mean it's it's not fully explored um elsewhere you've got things like the character of nell who leaves the house and never comes back you get to see why it is that she never comes back but she the fact that she never returns is is never really questioned or brought up by the house full of geneticists that she calls friends so that's kind of strange as well um another thing to kind of point out is is some bits of dialogue now there are some cracking lines of dialogue that are unintentionally hilarious now i don't think that's necessarily bad in a straight up bad way um but they are pretty brutal uh one example is one thing i learned from my daddy never cross a guy who's got the eyes of a killer like when did that ever come up in conversation uh, another moment to enjoy is one of the Scooby Gang geneticist blokes uh, actually makes a move on Melissa um, and reveals his concerns to an irate John outside. So he he got they're, they're both stood outside near the car and he's screaming at John that kissing her was like kissing a cold fish, um, and then he he adds to that it was like pressing my lips against a chilled shrimp. Uh, at which point John responds with, What are you talking about shrimp for? Other highlights and lowlights to look out for then. Um, if there's a highlight, if there's one massive highlight, it would have to be the, the moment that Anthony, uh, or one of the creatures that is supposedly Anthony, again, it's a little unclear, stows away in a watermelon that uh, the, the, the gang of geneticists have been fixated on, on whether or not they can eat this watermelon. And no, they can't eat this watermelon because it's being taken away for for some uh, vague reason it's a gift for somebody or something i don't know um but yeah the, the the watermelon is taken away and placed in the back of a car and this is when nell exits the house and never comes back um so yeah uh, there's a creature that's in this watermelon and it, it creeps out and uh, attacks nell while she's driving um it sort of shoves its tentacles up her nose and in her ears and under her skin while she's driving and it forces her to crash and it's a brilliant little scene with with some really lovely prosthetic work um it's got to be the highlight of the movie i would say if there's a low light it would have to be the uh the group chat scene uh where all the geneticists are stood around in the house and they're all stood around accusing one another of of being up to to shady tricks the problem is it's just it's just a a very badly shot thing it feels like maybe the the director was going for or the directors even was going for something um akin to the sort of infamous paranoia scene from the thing 
but it's handled really badly and it just feels like a bunch of shots uh stitched together from different angles which is exactly what it is i mean basically they've they've just pointed the camera at one person let them say all their lines then pointed the the camera at another person let them say all them like their lines and then they've just edited it all together but it just it feels so obvious that that's what's gone on that it really sort of takes you out of the moment and you don't really you don't really get that that um that tension that you're supposed to to get you're just sort of thinking to yourself none of these things match and you know at times it feels like people are, are not looking at the people that they're supposed to be speaking to it's quite ugly so um yeah that would be my highlights and lowlights of the uh, the film itself in terms of a verdict then um my verdict for kindred is that i really enjoyed it um it all builds towards a a, a suitably exciting climax uh, after providing pretty solid b-movie entertainment for for the rest of its runtime so i can't really complain about that at all in the end anthony is electrocuted and he seems to transform before he dies into something that's a little bit more humanoid and a little bit more like john so there is a suggestion that maybe he could have been saved if a different approach had been sort of taken to this whole thing it just kind of hints at it a little bit which i think is nice after uh, the death of uh, of of Anthony, things die down a little bit more, and then the the film has a sort of an extra climax. There's a sort of huge explosion as the house has to be destroyed um, for reasons that will become apparent if you uh, if you see it, and it just adds an extra beat of excitement to things. Um, it just adds just an extra sort of bonus climax, if you like. Um, that doesn't feel tacked on too much. It feels it feels nice, and it's just a, a lovely little extra to have in there. Also, as the credits roll and the house is sort of burning to the ground, um, we hear the sound of uh, of John's mother, and she's humming the song that she used to sing to him. So it sort of leaves you with this sort of like eerie but quite sad note that that makes you think of Anthony as a real person and someone who at one point possibly was kind of loved by by uh, by his mother it's very strange but it's it's just a nice sort of dark tone to the film uh, that that just finishes things off anyway overall i'd say then if i had to sum up uh to sum up kindred it is a film that i did enjoy uh, i think there's a lot to enjoy from kindred um that justifies the the gruesome and and for me very memorable artwork uh, VHS and poster artwork that came with it and for the kind of movie it is I have to say I was quite surprised by just how much I enjoyed it um, so yeah if like me you like this type of thing and if you can find it uh, I would suggest that you uh, check Kindred out Okay, so moving into the last part of the show then, I'm uh, delighted to be able to say I'm joined by the man who not only brought us that lurid and incredibly memorable cover and poster art for Kindred, uh, but he's also 
behind the now iconic VHS release artwork for Evil Dead and um, legendary covers for UK versions of Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Creepers, Basket Case and loads more since then. Uh, Graham Humphreys is with me. Graham, welcome to Adventures in VHS, sir. Well, welcome to you as well. And yeah, so um, as I say, first of all, thanks for joining me today. Um, just to get things started, I was reading an interview recently uh, where you were talking about how you got started in art and design um, and how you took uh, the career path that you did quite early on. Uh, and you mentioned that graphic design was kind of a more realistic career choice than than maybe the fine art, fine art option was uh, when you were back in college. Um, yeah, that's correct. I think there's there's probably some people and myself included that would say that would say what you do is a kind of fine art in itself. So I'm wondering it, it was it a conscious decision to try and bring sort of more fine art technique into the graphic design work that you did or or do you even really see a difference between those two things nowadays? Well, not really. Uh, I think at the time, um, illustration was still a bit of a mystery to me, and uh, I just assumed it was all under the same umbrella as graphic design anyway, though. And then I realised, of course, a lot of people who are doing graphic design weren't actually illustrating. Uh, I naturally gravitated towards the visual, uh, um, pictorial side of things anyway, then all my solutions would always end up with some sort of illustration within there. Uh, I think perhaps um, I didn't notice there was a big difference between the fine art side of things and the illustration side, purely because at Salisbury, where I went to college, there was a fine art department and then there was a graphic design department. And the two were very, very much um, uh, um, at opposite ends of the spectrum, as much that uh, people doing the fine art looked down upon the graphic designers and the graphic designers looked at the uh, fine art students just thought, you know, well, what the hell are you doing? Um, there was a sort of rivalry going on there. But to me, you know, the visual side of things, I thought, well, you know, some of the fine art stuff was looking quite illustrative to me. And I also felt that a lot of the illustration work had a, a very fine art element to it. And, you know, I always have this argument with people that um, uh, fine art illustration, I mean, who knows? Uh, there's a lot of fine art out there you see now, which is essentially just what I would call illustration work. And, and there's plenty of illustrators doing what I would call fine artwork. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's so blurred. Uh, to me, the big difference comes in the commercial side of things. Most fine artists will look at an illustration and think, well, it's commercial art. You're, you're being uh, you know, employed to do this job for a commercial reason. You're there to sell something. Yeah. Of course, fine art uh, now seems to be at a point where most artists are actually... Uh, also in a very commercial situation that they're, they're selling themselves, selling their work. And uh, I mean, you look at the work of um, you know, Damon Hurst, classic example. I mean, I, I would say this is almost entering to pure graphic design. Uh, and certainly it's very, very commercial. And, you know, when you speak to fine artists who are trying to align themselves with a gallery, uh, uh, align themselves with somebody who's going to sell their work for them with agents, uh, whomever, um, you just think, well, you know, this is commercial art. Mm-hmm. And and quite early on, you did uh, various bits of um, graphic design work in in the earlier part of your career. Um, there was a lot of sort of notable stuff for NME, um, but it does seem, again, referring back to this interview, it does seem like there was a, a focus in working in illustration for the fi- film industry. Is that would it be fair to say that, or was it just a case of following where the work went and then you kind of found a path along the way, or? A bit of both, to be quite honest. My, my uh, real interest in film poster work really stems from the posters of the forties and the fifties. I mean, very early stuff, uh, and um, 
obviously there were sort of classic posters from the sort of seventies as well, uh, some sort of stuff in the sixties. But um, really, my first love was the really old stuff, the stuff that you know I didn't grow up with, stuff that I knew happened from before I was born, uh, and I was just quite fascinated by this kind of quite alien. Uh, um, backlog of, uh, of amazing images uh, all very painterly in their style and you know just quite quite colorful and uh, very bold and you know to say quite often uh, uh, unrelated to the film that they may be advertising um you know in some ways very exploitation i guess uh really that's what i wanted to do but then yeah, obviously those films didn't exist Per se, and it was just a question of trying to take that aesthetic from then and bring it up into what, what was the current sort of a uh, market at the time. And you know, people look at the Evil Dead and uh, uh, think of it as a quintessentially eighties uh, a thing. And for me, it was always a pastiche of the forties sort of and fifties. And my, my head was most definitely in that era when I was actually creating it. And that, that's really what I was trying to do with it. Uh, uh, of course. You know, it, its whole feel and texture and the, the, the idea of the film was made in the 80s anyway locates it uh, fairly in that era. But um, but yes, in my head, I was, I was looking back in the 50s and 40s. Okay, and you, and you mentioned the, the Evil Dead there, which is, is kind of quite a legendary piece and is just one of the things that you did for uh, for Palace Pictures. Uh, could, you, could you talk us through maybe how the work with Palace came about originally? Yeah, certainly... It was very much um, uh, an accident, uh, I would say, that uh, I had friends who were working for a small agency uh, and part of their work was film-related in terms of the books they were producing and there was certainly a love of cinema and somebody had suggested that uh, perhaps uh, I try going to Paris who had just set up uh, set up shop for film distribution and... Um, Palace was just one of the three or four companies I went to. I went to Artificial Eye, uh, a couple of the other people around at the time. Uh, Artificial Eye just really were not interested at all. Uh, however, luckily, Palace were always on the day I went to the office, he was out. Uh, I did see other members of the staff, uh, I think Joanne, um, uh, Joanne Sellers, who's now obviously a very successful producer. Uh, Paul Webster, also another very successful producer now. I uh, saw those two and they absolutely loved the work. And of course, it was very crude stuff at the time. Stuff, I was hawking around from my college years, essentially. But they saw enough uh, within that and obviously the interests of, in horror that I had they kind of thought that I'd be perfect for the Evil Dead and um, it was very much a gamble for them. I think they didn't have any idea if the film was going to do well or not, but it was you know, very much a sort of a, a concept of uh, a, a sort of grindhouse horror. And I think, you know, they were willing to take the gamble. And, um, you know, for both of us, it was a gamble that really paid off. And there is kind of, uh, there is a distinctive look to, to some of that work for Palace, I think. Um one could sort of draw stylistic comparisons quite closely between the, the Evil Dead and the Santa Sangra artwork that you did as well. Was that something that was just, was it a conscious decision by you or what, were you sort of, were you brief to say, let's kind of keep things in a, in a sort of continuous, similar kind of look? Well, almost in a house style. Yeah, thinking. yeah. Uh, no, that wasn't really conscious at all. I don't think it's probably just because it's my work. <laughs> right, yeah. I tend to work in a, a, a very similar way. Uh, and, you know, at the time, 
you know, I had my own sort of ways of controlling what I was doing and keeping things very symmetrical and very formal and uh, uh, almost sort of with mirrored compositions. And um, really, you know, as, as the years have progressed, that's kind of changed. And uh, that's really just part of my own sort of uh, evolution, I guess. And, uh, you know, if, if over a period of eight years there was a sort of very, very much a similar style, well, I think that's just because that was a linear progression sure. anyway, though. And, you know, the, the, you'll see sort of shifts in colour, colour use as well, as I sort of picked up new influences and... Um, uh, stylistic uh, uh, um, sort of interpretations, I guess, of the way I, I was working on particular projects. Okay, and um, you also worked uh, around that time, but a little bit later, perhaps on on uh, the first five of the Nightmare on Elm Street releases. Um, and it's strange because Nightmare on Elm Street is one of those examples of a movie that has completely different artwork in whichever market you happen to be in. Um, and I was wondering, have you ever sort of been given any idea why distributors specifically want something different for, say, a UK market? Or is it, do, do you ever get sort of let into sort of why, they're, why they don't cho- just choose to replicate what they did elsewhere? Well, I think at the time, uh, there was very much uh, a, 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 a different kind of a feel for horror that I think the UK market was definitely different to the American market. Um, and as much, and I think I mentioned this before a couple of times in a couple of different interviews, that certainly culturally, um, the music scene at the time uh, would have influenced things. I mean, your target audience, you know, sort of young, whether it's teenage, young 20s, uh, up to 30s. Uh, certainly, the, the, the music at the time was very different um, from the American audience and the UK audience. And I think really, coming like Palace, who, who you know, quite into the music themselves and a lot of their early video successes were music videos uh and certainly you know personally uh, among them that there are people just really into uh, various bands and uh, uh have been had some involvement in video shoots as well i think that that was really how that happened that um they felt that culturally there was a difference in, in the way the art would work in America and the way the art w- would work in the UK. I think there was a, a, a sort of the idea there was a different audience, uh, like although it may be the same audience in some ways, it's actually culturally located in a different place. Okay, and a huge part of, of what I'm looking at with Adventures in VHS for both the podcast and for the book is, is how the video rental market... Um, and the artwork that went along with that was such a huge part of the home video experience and and a huge personal part of, of my sort of growing up. And that really ties into the, the coverage on this particular episode where I'm looking at Kindred. Um, so I was wondering, could you tell us a bit about what the brief was for Kindred and 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 what kind of... Uh, what kind of process you you have to go through to? I mean, what are you actually shown parts of the film, or are you are you just kind of set, told we need a, a monster with with tentacles, and 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 then you kind of left to it? I was just wondering what the the process is normally, and what the process of that particular film was. Well, I think you just about summed up. There. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, I had no idea what it was about. I saw right. a couple of stills, uh, and that was really my my only material. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, quite often in a situation like that, you would be given a, a VHS of the film to watch, uh, or, or certainly a substantial amount of uh, material. But uh, uh, um, literally with the Kindred, it was very much, we know what we want. Uh, uh, we want you to do your style, i.e. Evil Dead, 
Um, we want it to have a hint of alien about it, um, so keep it green. Uh, and it was literally just give us a monster, give us the tentacles, and uh, yeah, that's that's that was the brief. As simple right. as that. I mean, there was no there was no real creative input in, in terms of the image itself. Um, my interpretation was merely the, the textures and the colours and uh, the use of paint. Uh, um, and I, to be honest, I don't really remember painting it. Uh, it's one of those jobs which kind of happened. I think there may have been sort of three or four jobs going on at the same time. It's just one of those things. It's like, well, you know, almost production line. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't really want to say that because it, it never is. But uh, it, it kind of felt like it at the time. It's like, oh yeah, here's another monster movie to make it green, make it like the Evil Dead, and blah blah blah. So uh, that, that's how the kindred it is in. Now, I, I still don't think I've seen the film to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, is that sort of is that a typical process, or is that just something that during that time, because there was a sort of high demand for you know quick turnover of films and stuff like that, is that is that just how it was back then? You were just given a very quick brief, and then. It seemed so for certain releases. I wouldn't say that was the case across the board, but um, I mean, even now, I think that uh, you know you can see a film poster and and, and uh, a film that will do very well, and uh, uh, there will be a replication stylistically of, of a successful campaign. I mean, you know, one of the most classic examples of all time is probably Reservoir Dogs, uh, uh, very much you know quite brutalist piece of graphic design. Um, and he just knew that actually on the success of that film, uh, you know, a success that was never guaranteed, however it just seemed to work, that everybody would say, do us a, a Reservoir Dogs. And then, of course, he had Train Spotting, another, you know, fantastic campaign which just caught uh, the sort of zeitgeist as such. And, um, you know, people would say, well, we want, can you do a Train Spotting? Uh, so it happens now still. I mean, I... Uh, um, a, a successful campaign people will always assume that you repeat that campaign you'll guarantee the success for that, uh, the film but of course you know it never works like that it really doesn't and uh, uh, uh and it's always very short-sighted i feel so it sounds like there was kind of quite an element of, of free reign given to, to to well to you as, a, as an artist at least anyway is that is that something that's still the same today or um, has that changed a little bit more with so much focus and so much attention on marketing? Uh, again, it depends on the job. I, there's a certain amount of trust uh, in the work I do currently, especially for the Arrow releases and Second Sight now as well. A couple of other companies, Nucleus Films, obviously. Um, there's an understanding that I know what the genre is and, and, and how best to uh, encapsulate that. Um, uh, I think with other uh, projects perhaps it's a bit more experimental and it's a bit more i mean that element of gamble still happens i think commissioning illustration full stop for most people is a bit of a gamble because no matter how good an artist is there are going to be some jobs that just don't work it's, yeah. it's just that's, that's the way it is um it's not the artist's fault necessarily it's not the client's fault necessarily it's just a, a some things just don't ever gel and um I mean, that's part of the excitement, I guess, of illustration anyway. You just can't guarantee how things are going to be. And then sometimes you work on something which perhaps, you know, seems like a, a very quick, you know, cheap job you're going to be doing and, um, you know, with, with perhaps not quite the same passion you might have had for something else. And yet suddenly that will end up being, you know, quite an amazing piece of work. I mean, something you can be very proud of and satisfied with and, uh, you know, the client's really happy and suddenly everybody really likes it. You just can't anticipate how things are going to work out ever. 
Yeah. Does it does it ever help if you if it's a, a well? I'm assuming that it would, but does it ever help if it's a a project that you're a film that you you really like anyway? Or have you ever sort of been given a project where you've seen the film and you actually hated the film, but you've still had to go away and and knock something out? I mean, obviously, <laughs> you maybe don't name names. I don't know, but. <laughs> No, I think at the end of the day, any film has has um, something in it that you're going to like, and I think it's actually almost your job, your duty to actually identify what it is that actually interests you, and then focus on that. Uh, obviously, you have to understand, you know, who, who the audience are going to be and what the client wants and uh, what they're kind of expecting. But at the end of the day, you know, you literally do. You look at something, you think, well. The film's not great. I don't like it personally, perhaps, but there are elements in it that I can relate to other things that I do like. And so those are the bits you take from it. And, you know, even if it means you're sitting there thinking, right, I'm working on this particular project, but in your head you're actually working on something else, mm-hmm. um, that's fine as long as, you know, everybody's happy and, you know, you produce a piece of work which you, you feel is going to do the job. Okay, so I think probably everybody listening to this um, will have one particular piece of yours that... that that is probably the closest to their hearts um is the one piece that you are the most satisfied with that you're the most proud of uh and and consequently is there also one that you'd kind of like the chance to almost go back and have another go at well i had a go um revisiting return of the living dead recently and uh, i think a number of people have seen that already and uh, it's interesting just seeing how things had developed in that time and i have no idea why i chose to do the image in the way i did at the time and um all these things you know happen quite spontaneously really it seems uh, in retrospect but uh um it's interesting just going back to something and actually recreating the composition and the layout and the basic concept but then you know with the sort of new new tools and skills that you have um Generally speaking, I don't think it's, it's, it's necessarily a good thing to go back to stuff because I think, well, you know, that, that was then, that was that year, and that was you at that point, and, that, you know, there are other things ahead and things going on now, and uh, you, you kind of want to be looking forward all the time, um, which seems a bit bizarre given that most of the stuff obviously does seem to be uh, reissue stuff at the moment. But, um, but you know, I've worked on a couple of uh, uh, campaigns for short films recently, and, you know, they are new products, and they are looking ahead with it as the new sort of horror genre and um um i guess you know every job as i say is, is very different and um you know how things are perceived you, you know you could take an illustration which may function fantastically for a, a, a film from the 80s for instance yet somehow if you relate it to a film which is current then suddenly it's no longer of the 80s it's suddenly something for now i mean it you know it happens now I mean, you, we look at those wonderful illustrations for Say for instance, Rage of the Last Ark, and then you look at the body of work, you know, from somebody like Drew Strews and or Peak, and you go back and look at the previous campaigns and all the previous jobs they've done, um, and you think, well, you know, are they of an era which is older than that? Yet somehow they capture that particular era. So it really does depend on the film and um, uh, uh, um, and really, you know, the perception of everything that's going on around it. And uh, during the time you've been working, has there been sort of one film? in particular that that you would have wanted to do the artwork for uh one that sort of like you just you've seen the poster for it and you've thought maybe i wish i'd had the chance to 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 have a stab at that or is the one sort of or maybe is the one director now that or or film now that you'd you'd kind of be keen to 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 have a stab at uh i don't think so to be honest i mean i i just feel lucky to get any work that comes (laughs) at the end of the day um so 
again, I think it's there's a, a, a matter of trust that I think somebody comes to you with a job, they they, they trust that you're the man to do the job and actually deliver something that that's going to you know satisfy them and uh, satisfy hopefully uh, uh, the, the sort of consumer or, or uh, customer out there. Um, I've certainly got no particular film that I think I should have done that or I would love to have done that it, it, my, my head doesn't seem to work like that at all as I say I, I'll, I'll take any project that comes to me and then take it on its own merits and um, as I say just feel grateful for any of the work that comes along anyway of course yeah so um, for for most people at least anyway the, the days of VHS are over uh, but obviously you've gone on to, to prosper elsewhere with uh, companies like Shameless and Arrow Video uh, who really seem like companies that are really about celebrating great uh, great artwork. Um, so obviously a, 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 it's maybe no surprise to see you working with, with companies like that. Um, so what kind of things have you been up to f- for them, uh, for companies like that most recently? Uh, well, I, um, I did the Basket Case trilogy, uh, uh, which has just come out for um, Second Sight, uh, and I've just complete two bits of artwork for releases coming out next year which would be uh, Reanimator and Bride Reanimator um, I've got three films coming up for Arrow I don't think I'm supposed to give you the titles yet but anyway okay. uh, a couple of them are quite old pieces well they have they have just announced I think um, Black Sunday and um, uh, I can't remember what the other one was now anyway they're, they're, <laughs> my head gets filled with so many jobs going through uh, you know sometimes I lose track of what I'm doing but, um, but yeah interesting I've just uh uh, created a, a poster for um, new film Gambit, which in fact opens tomorrow. Oh, right. uh, uh, which is an illustrated version of the poster. I mean, obviously, all over the underground or wherever you might see the photographic posters. But um, I, I have heard actually it was Colin Firth who pushed for an illustrated uh, solution to the poster. So I have done that. Um, it's a pastiche of a, 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 a James Bond poster. Um, and uh, amusingly, has Alan Rickman in the Bluefield mode, um, with both being Bond, of course. Um, and I'm sure you recognise which poster it's intended to uh, lampoon. How the poster is going to get used, I don't know. It's not going to be um, uh, uh, there for the cinemas, or, or uh, I don't think it'll even be a DVD cover or anything. But it'll be ancillary to the main campaign, used in some way. Um, and certainly, as soon as I get permission, I'll bug up on Facebook anyway, then make sure people do see it. Excellent. Uh, so just finally, uh, to, to round things out, I think most people will have grown up, or certainly most people listening to this podcast will have, have grown up with, with your images burned into their, their childhood memories. I'm wondering, do you take at least a little bit of pleasure in the idea that there were maybe a few kids who who probably couldn't sleep at night having seen one of your posters on a video shop wall. Yeah. Yeah, good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, things kept me awake when I was a child, Um, so it's my job to pass that on. Excellent, brilliant. Well, you succeeded anyway, so uh, you've managed to scar me for life, but I'm happy to say I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) Doesn't Uh, it show? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, all that remains for me to say is thanks again for joining me today. That was fantastic. Graham Humphreys, cheers. Right, thank you. I kissed her the other night. It's nothing important. You just a little get acquainted offer. I was sorry I did. Why? 
She felt like I was pressing my lips to a chilled shrimp. What are you talking about shrimp for? So just before I wrap up uh, this uh, latest episode of Adventures in VHS, there's a couple of bits of feedback um, that I need to go through. The first two were bits that were kind of left over from the last episode just because we had so much stuff going in to that show with uh, with all the VHS memories. Um, I didn't forget about them. I just uh, chopped that particular, th- those particular pieces of, uh, of feedback out and, and decided to include them in this where we had a little bit more room. So the first one that I need to mention then is from Michael Burke. And Michael writes, Hi Noel, I came, cr- came across your podcast by pure accident and I have to say it's been brilliant listening. Thank you for doing something like this. Your podcast has got me thinking about a film I saw on TV back when I was 18 years old. But I can't remember what the film is called, but I've always wanted to see it again. So I'm hoping you know what film I'm on about and can tell me the title. The only thing I remember about the film is a scene where an old guy with grey hair is sat at a desk. I think the room is in an old castle which was haunted, but I'm not sure. The guy is sat at a desk, then his chair goes back, so he's balancing on the two back legs of the chair as loads of ghosts rush through him, uh, rush out at him through the desk slash wall. It's loud, whistling, screaming type of thing. That's the only scene I can remember, probably because in all the films I've seen, I've never seen this scene replicated. I'm hoping it's unique enough for you to remember. Uh, If you can't help me, then that's fine, but it was worth a shot. Cheers, Michael. Well, Michael, um, I can help you, but I'm not going to claim... I'm not going to claim that it was me that picked this out. I actually put this out to a couple of forum members just to see if they could figure it out. And uh, according to uh, the forum, it's 1988's High Spirits, directed by Neil Jordan, which is a film I seem to vaguely remember. I know it's got Steve Guttenberg, I'm pretty sure it's got Daryl Hannah, and I know it's kind of a, a haunted house uh, family adventure type of thing. I am 99% sure that I've seen it, and although I don't remember that scene, that does sound about right for that film. So uh hope that was of some help, but as I say... Um, not my doing. You can thank the uh, the Presert VHS forum for that particular answer. Um, next piece of feedback comes from Craig Hughes, uh, which was a just it, it was a similar thing really that was attached to one of his uh, well attached to his VHS memory. So uh, I'm just going to read that out now because uh, obviously I uh, I didn't want to leave that out. It's just couldn't really fit it in the last show. Uh, so Craig Hughes, it was a PS, and he asked. Do you remember a film where a big blonde ex-Delta Force Green Beret commando cuts off the arm of an assailant with a machete in the jungle and beats him to death with it? Been bugging me for years. I tried googling the keywords machete, arm, beaten and death. (laughs) I hope you weren't doing that at work, mate. Uh, And the only thing that comes up is 1987's Deadly Deadly Prey. Uh, but to me the synopsis doesn't doesn't match I'm sure it was about an ex-soldier forced to take on the militia in the jungle to get his daughter back it probably was, a lot of films in the 80s were um, but then uh, then again it sounds a bit too much like Commando so what do I know well yeah it does sound a lot like Commando um, again I put this out to the forum and multiple people said no it's definitely Deadly Prey uh, Deadly Prey by uh, directed by David A. Pryor from 1987. Deadly Prey I haven't seen, but I know that it's a little bit of a for a, a little bit of a forum favourite, and I know that it's a little bit of a favourite of those who like uh, good old-fashioned silly 80s action. So I will be checking it out at some point. Um, but yeah, what can I say? 
the forum reckons it's deadly prey so uh, Craig I hope that's useful for you hopefully it is um, and a newer uh, piece of um, feedback that came in just this week so I'm going to read it out now um, is a VHS memory so as I say I will continue to read these as, as long as people continue to send them in uh, the, the competition is obviously over but um, here we go anyway uh, Noel, I rarely write to any of the podcasts I listen to but felt compelled to in this case as your series on VHS struck a chord with me as I'm sure it's done with a lot of your listenership you invited your audience to share experiences of growing up with VHS on one of the early shows. It's a bit late, but I thought I'd share my story with you at any rate. My film education began in a pit village just outside of Sheffield in the 80s, as every anecdote should start. It was a dark and pretty miserable time, to be honest. A lot of the community was scratching around for work due to the strike, and my mother was terminally ill. It sounds ridiculous to imagine now, but as a six-year-old, I would regularly trot down to the local video shop whenever any doctors or, towards the end, vicars were present. I was way too young to rent anything, but I remember the guy behind the counter being fine with me looking at the cases and reading the backs. He was busy watching a film and never seemed to do any work. It was this world of the forbidden, titles like Ghoulies, The Serpent and the Rainbow, the Friday the 13th films at Al, that piqued my interest. Horror seemed to showcase more creativity and played on my mind a lot more than comedies did. I had two much older cousins who would watch the shit out of Arnie films of the era whenever my auntie was called into regular babysitting duty. Fast forward a few years and I had moved to a boring flat in Lincolnshire. Slapped in a boarding school and saw my family every few months, but when we did, film viewing was high on the agenda. By this time, trips to Hollywood Nights and the poorly titled Movie Market were the norm. My brother and I had a penchant for action and martial arts films. I remember one amazing day when we were home alone but my dad had rented us for rented for us a day's viewing consisting of Robot Jocks, The Ambulance, Arena, Best of the Best, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and Maniac Cop. These films would just not get made now. Today that misspent youth serves me well in pub quizzes. I retain an almost encyclopedic knowledge of films, particularly from that era. I love The Ambulance, it's one of the finest straight-to-video titles out there. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I thought I'd like to turn it into a career, but maybe at 31, it's a bit too late. On a social level, on occasion, I'll get the old, vi- I'll get the old video out and have a VHS day with some of my mates and some beers. We had an Arnie day recently, and I'm aiming to have a straight-to-video day. Any recommendations would be warmly received. Anyway, it's a bit rambling and only covers a fraction of my life in film. We could be here all day, but I'm enjoying your show immensely and have found Watch Your Damage also a treat, so keep up the good work. Thanks for taking the time to read. Regards, David Smith, and that's Curbside Canvas on Twitter. So, first of all, thanks, David. That's a a cracking VHS memory. Um, And uh, I'm sorry that you were introduced to to VHS in such sad circumstances, but... um, like me, uh, it sounds like you found VHS to be a, a very suitable babysitter. Um, so yeah, I, 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 it's a similar situation to me with, as you mentioned, Hollywood. I think Hollywood Nights is a cracking name for a VHS store. Uh, yes, but poor, uh, poorly titled movie market is is not quite as good. Um, but yeah, it was a similar sort of thing. I would often just go from um, video store A to video store B to video store C to video store D. Uh, and just look at the covers that is genuinely it seems strange to say that now but i i would spend 
an entire day just walking around uh, the streets of Swinton, um, going into those different stores and just reading the backs of the covers. And sometimes I'd, well, a lot of the time I'd rent stuff, but there were times when I didn't have the money to rent anything. I'd just kind of wander around looking at things. It was a day out, and, and you know. So, um, yeah, so the uh, the day of viewing consisting Robot Jocks, The Ambulance Arena, Best of the Best, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and Maniac Cop. Jesus, that's some day, isn't it? Um, Robot Jocks I need to catch up with. The Ambulance I haven't seen, but I have bought, so that's on the list of things to watch. I have it, I just haven't watched it yet. Arena I watched recently, I have the uh, the VHS of that. Best of the Best I have seen, yes. And Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey was something I used to watch on a daily basis. Uh, and of course I've seen Maniac Cop, yeah. Um, so a cracking day's lineup, an absolute cracking day's lineup. In terms of uh, your straight-to-video day, any recommendations? I mean, I don't know. It depends how many movies you're trying to cram in there. I would try and check out one of the Bronx Warriors movies if you can get those on video. Um, I will be speaking about those more in the book, but um, suffice to say, they are cracking, cracking movies. Um, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, that's always a light-hearted one, so I don't know if you're watching four or five movies in a day, throwing Killer Clowns from Outer Space into the mix would, uh, would always be a good idea because it'll lighten the mood somewhat. So, uh, yeah, and moving on from there then, um, that's it for feedback. Uh, two more things that I just need to say before I... Well, three more things I just need to say before I wrap up. Um, fuck it, let's make it four more things. The first thing is uh, just I need to say a big thanks to Jonathan, which is uh, at jhinson77 uh, on Twitter. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for the hookup on the magazine. You know what I'm talking about. Very, very, very much appreciated. Um, and uh, another thanks to Dale, uh, which is at Viva VHS uh, on Twitter. Dale, I've got a bunch of things to thank you for, mate, but uh, very recently that hookup appears to have paid off, so uh, watch this space. So uh, big thanks to Dale. Um, and another point uh, is to Paul, last month's competition winner. Mate, I have your address, and I've not forgotten you. The prize will be out very soon. Just things have been a bit crazy, that's all. Um and uh, yeah, that was Adventures in VHS episode 6. I will aim to have another episode up before Christmas. In fact, I will have another episode up before Christmas. Um, thing is, I'm currently in the middle of sorting out an interview for the next show. Um, I don't really like to put the shows out without an interview, really, because I know that that's kind of a big part of what it is that I'm trying to do. Um, so I will try and hold out for that interview, but it sounds like it. It sounds like that the earliest is that that's going to happen is about three weeks from now. Um, so with that in mind, I would imagine episode seven will probably be up about this time next month, so about mid-December. Uh, as I say, should be before Christmas though. Uh, in the meantime, go and check out the 80s movie podcast that I do with Mike from Chinstroker vs. Punter. That show is called Watch Your Damage, and you can find that very easily on iTunes. Also check out 35mm Heroes, which is the weekly show that I do with Ian and Jordan from Eat Sleep Live Film. Again, very easy to find on iTunes, 35mm Heroes. Um, I would like to take this opportunity to thank each and every one of you for the kind words that you've left on iTunes. Uh, and it seems that this does genuinely have an impact on how you rank on iTunes and how many listeners you can grab. So at this point, I would like to say if you haven't already, please feel free to go and rate and review Adventures in VHS on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. Uh, as well as that, share, like, and tweet this particular episode of the show, and that's great. Um, any Anything like that will help with me convincing someone to publish the Adventures in VHS book 
uh, in the long term. So, uh, which is, uh, you know, the book is now rapidly approaching being about halfway written for those who are interested. So please, 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 every single share, tweet, like, and iTunes review really does count. Um, aside from that, feedback is welcome, and I'd love to have some more for the next show. So you can send that to noel at filmrant.co.uk. You can check out all my endeavours over at filmrant.co.uk or follow me on Twitter via at filmrant. And this has been Adventures in VHS, episode 6. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed making it. I'm Noel Mella, and I hope to see you next time. Ta-ra. Bye.